Hello everyone, my name is Rochelle Innocent and I'm the founder and CEO of Project Purpose. Welcome to our YouTube channel. We are a community that is focused on nourishing the intellectual and character development in children. We do that through our parent-child workshops that center around four themes. One, autonomy, two, self-efficacy, three, compassion, and four, self-concept. And we focus on these themes to cultivate perseverance, resilience, and grit in each child. Project Purpose's overarching mandate is to renew and rebuild family, communities, and relationships. Our YouTube channel provides us a space to discuss all topics that touch on families, communities, and relationships with ourselves as well as with others, with a special focus on mental health and education. More precisely, how these institutions, mental health and all things related to psychology as well as education have played a role and are currently playing a role in our societies at large. What I would love is that our discussions and debates give us a real opportunity to think critically about what needs to change about these specific structures to enable us to live to our bold slogan, support, protect and empower our children through youth focused development. In other words, leadership in juvenescence. We have these discussions as a demonstration of the fact that we recognize that valuing our children's leadership potential also translates as recreating and co-creating our environments socially and politically to enable our children to thrive. Now, as is the YouTube convention, please do subscribe, click that notification bell so that you're aware of every time we post. And if you appreciate this content and want to keep that conversation going, Please do like, comment, and share this video. Let's get into it. All right, so let's delve into the topic for today. Before get, getting into the conversation, I did want to preface that these are my opinions, and I would like the first few videos to be more foundational, so laying the groundwork for some of where I'm positioned by way of what I think needs to change in our societies as it relates to the way we look at mental health and the way we have conversations about mental health and also the way we educate our children. So I'm going to do my best to substantiate my points of view. My points of view are, in my opinion, very well informed. Um, and I want to make sure that I share that with you, but I also want an opportunity to have you challenge my perspectives. If you disagree, I would love to know why you disagree. I'd love to get a sense of where those sources come from, whether it's experiential or based on substantiated research, because I really do want us to have lively debates and to really have critical discussions around the things that need to change in our environments so that our children are raised in a different climate. And I think that a different climate specifically a better climate than the climates that all of us have been subjected to and raised in because life is about growth and evolution. Yes. Um, so before we start, I have prepared myself a coffee today. Um, and so this mug, also French, this mug actually is from Paris, from Paris. Um, and it says, uh, le matin avant mon café, je suis. And then there are four options. So this is pretty much saying in the morning before my coffee, I am. And then Sinta is like happy, uh, de bonne humeur, uh, I'm in a good mood, um, fresh, I feel fresh, and then ta gueule, which is a very impolite way of saying to be quiet. And I find this hilarious because I'm actually one of those annoyingly happy morning people. And I think it's just a little funny that I'm drinking coffee out of a mug that would suggest the opposite. 
So feel free to take this opportunity to pause your video, grab yourself a drink, and let's get into today's chat. Mm. So good. I need to be careful because in my last video, I realized that the mic really picked up on my like drinking in my beverage and this is not an ASMR video so I'm going to try to be much more delicate in the way that I drink my drink. My apologies for that in the first video. Alright so this video is really taking a look at mental health and the industry that is built around each of our mental health and you know this is important. I think this is an important conversation for us to have and for us to think critically about because we need to recognize that mental health in and of itself is a billion dollar industry. There are many people who unfortunately benefit from our mental illness. And I think that as we become more open and sharing and having conversations about our mental health, I think it also means that we need to also give ourselves a toolkit to think critically about how we're being diagnosed and how we're, you know, being made to see ourselves within a specific lens that may be less than healthy. Um, especially when there are people who are profiting off of mental illness, it's not always the case that the people who are, who you're commissioning and who you're trusting with your mental health are making the right choices and are motivated by the right things. Um, and I wanna have a conversation about that because I think history informs our realities. And those who forget their history are misinformed about how they engage and navigate in their present realities. So it's important that if it is the case that we're looking for solutions and interventions to help us to maintain or to improve our mental health, that we're doing so in a way where we're informed of all the players within the industry, of all the, the, the motivations, the desires, the, the interests, so that we can make sure that we do the best that we can for ourselves and that all our decisions that we're making are with ourselves in mind. I want to call on three specific points that I made in my initial video, and I made them sort of, you know, in passing, but they're important points. And the first point was the way that a mental illness is defined. And I specified in my first video that a mental illness is not necessarily rooted in a neurophysiological disorder or effect or ailment in your brain, which means you can have a perfect brain by way of chemistry and composition and you still have a mental health illness or a mental health disorder. The important distinction that we need to make between a mental health issue that is rooted in the composition and chemistry of your brain and a mental health issue that is not rooted in the composition and chemistry of your brain is the way we treat them. And it's important that the treatment aligns with the source of the issue. So if your mental illness is a behavioral illness, and we'll talk a little bit more about how a professional would distinguish that, then the intervention should also be behavioral because it has nothing to do with the composition and the chemistry of your brain. In, other, in the other sense, if your mental health issue is rooted in the neurophysiology of your brain, <laughs> sorry, sometimes I get a little tongue-tied with that, um, but if there is a specific part of your brain that you know either the chemistry is a little bit off or you've had an injury or you know there's a bit of a development lapse and there is substantiated evidence that has been corroborated by multiple professionals that says, hey, yeah, there's this issue with the composition and the chemistry of the brain, and as a result of that, these are the behavioral manifestations, then yes, it makes complete sense that those interventions are treated with medication. 
The, the issue here, though, is that there are a lot of cases, and in my opinion, too many cases, where we have mental health illnesses that are strictly rooted in behavior. There's absolutely nothing wrong with the composition and chemistry of your brain. You have an otherwise healthy brain by way of composition and chemistry, and yet you're still being prescribed medication that alters that chemistry as part of your intervention. And this is something that I'm very deeply against. Um, and I, I think we're gonna delve into the DSM. So this is the Diagnosis Statistic Manual that psychiatrists, psychologists, GPs, and medical professionals who are licensed to prescribe medication are utilizing in order to determine if whether or not what you're experiencing by way of symptoms qualifies as a mental health issue. And through the years with the different additions, lots of evolutions have taken place. And a lot of those evolutions means that the, how they're sort of assessing you has become more and more and more open to interpretation. And we're gonna talk about why that's problematic in this video. And we're also gonna talk about how you ensure that there's alignment. So. If it is the case that you have been diagnosed with a mental health issue and it's behavioral, you ensure that you know the options that are available to you are behavioral as well because you don't need to dig into the chemistry of your brain to solve a behavior um, that isn't rooted in the chemistry of your brain, right? So if it's a cognitive distortion, um, if it's because of an experience that you've had within your environment, then there are different methodologies that we can utilize that doesn't involve intervening by way of involving medication that alters that chemistry. A very strong position is if you have a mental health issue where if you look at the Diagnostic Statistic Manual, the DSM, it, it, it has a behavioral profile and it will distinguish between a psychological issue that has a neuropsychological profile, that has a behavioral profile, or that has a cognitive profile. And if you have a mental health issue that has a behavioral profile, medication shouldn't be your first, second, or third option. Medication really doesn't have a role to play in a mental health issue that is strictly behavioral. So I, I guess a, a good guideline to go by is don't play with your neurochemistry if there's nothing wrong with it to begin with. Your neurons and the cells in your brain are not like the cells in the rest of your body. If you lose them, you lose them for good. There's not um, a whole lot of regeneration happening with, with the cells in your brain. So you don't want to go down that rabbit hole where you're playing and altering the neurochemistry of your brain and then you're realizing that there are much worse symptoms that you're now needing to manage that's going to require potentially a lifelong sort of, sort of suite of medications to help to try to get back to where you were before you even took your first pill. And I, I'd love for us to avoid that, um, for us to not become medically dependent or drug dependent for the sake of you know having a normal existence when we never needed to take pills to begin with. And this is a huge issue within the mental health industry. There's a lot of prescriptions being taken or being prescribed that are completely unnecessary. You'll find yourself being offered a myriad of different medications throughout your life because it will take probably your entire life for you to get back to the neurochemistry, the balance of that neurochemistry you know, prior to you taking your first pill. And that for me is tragic, that's tragedy. Um, if someone's mental health issue had nothing to do with their neurochemistry and the prescribing practitioner decided that that was the best or the easiest fix, 
and now you're dealing with a lifelong drug dependency as well. I find that for mental health issues that are rooted strictly in behavioral or cognitive profile, like the cognitive and behavioral profiled mental health issues, CBT, so cognitive behavioral therapies, emotional focus therapies are the best interventions for those and they take more time. It's not a quick fix like a pill, but they are actually effective. So once you go through those programs, you have a better chance of not living with that same issue as opposed to taking a pill that masks the issue but is still there, you want to give yourself the opportunity or the chance to really find yourself free of that behavior that is holding you back. And I think that that means that you align the intervention with the profile of the mental health issue that you're sort of dealing with. So behavioral profile as by way of the mental health issue, you want a behavioral focused intervention. And some of the best ones out there are cognitive behavioral as well as emotional focused. And what I want to reiterate is you always want to see a parallel between the intervention and the profile of that mental health issue. What is the case and has become more and more the case as the DSM has evolved is you'll find a mental health issue that has, let's say, a behavioral profile, yet all of the interventions are playing with the neurochemistry. So playing, you know, they're like a neuropsychological sort of intervention model. And that's misalignment. That's something that needs to be addressed. If a mental health, if a mental health issue has a neuropsychological profile, in order to even determine and to confirm its legitimacy, you need to run brain scans. There needs to be tests. They need to look into the actual composition and chemistry of your brain before they can conclusively tell you, yes, absolutely, like this is the issue. If someone is just looking at you and asking you a couple of questions and then telling you that you have a mental health issue that has a neuropsychological profile, that is a red flag. That is something that you need to be concerned with. Neuropsychological profile mental health issues require that same level of investigation. And there are too many situations, and we're gonna talk about the statistics in a later video, where doctors are sort of, you know, swinging by the hip and they're asking you a few questions and then telling you that you have a mental health issue that has a neuropsychological profile and then prescribing you drugs that will alter the neurochemistry of your brain. Um, and if you're not going through the tests, if they're not going through the specialist to confirm that there is indeed um, an abnormality in the composition or the chemistry of your brain, if they're just asking you questions and then from there deciding to play with your neurochemistry, that is highly problematic. And when we talk about the route of diagnostics, we're talking about a route of diagnostics that is going to confirm if there's an ailment, if there's an injury, if there's an abnormality in the composition or the chemistry of your brain, which can be a byproduct of development. It can be a byproduct of an injury. So in this case, prescribing medication, absolutely necessary. If this is not the case, then medication really shouldn't be part of the intervention. Mental health issue is behavioral strictly, nothing wrong with the brain composition or chemistry, then the intervention in and of itself should be a parallel and should be behavioral as well. And this, this is a non-negotiable for me. And it should be a non-negotiable for everyone. And I think the reason why there's confusion is because very few people understand the mechanics behind how a mental health issue is first referenced as such and then treated as such. And 
when there aren't enough people to critique the way that the professionals are sort of delivering their expertise to the market, if there's not a lot of policing going on and there's this blind trust that takes place, then you as the end user, the consumer, you're the one that's going to get knocked for it, right? So it's very important that everyone has a baseline understanding of how it's supposed to work so that we can all sort of raise the red flag when it's not working appropriately. Really, I guess the point that I'm making here is if you have a mental health issue that is behavioral, you do not want to expose yourself to drug intervention, to a drug intervention that has, you know, the ability to completely shift the neurochemistry of your brain when there was nothing wrong with it to begin with. You do not play with your neurochemistry unless you absolutely have to. And even when you have to, there are serious risks. You might not even want to. You want to maybe try the behavioral route first and see if that alleviates some of the effects depending on the mental health issue that we're talking about. There is a cause for concern and a need to seek further clarification. If you know, you're having a conversation with your mental health practitioner and they're suggesting that you have a mental health issue that has a behavioral profile and you can do your own research, the DSM is available you know, to the public, you can buy it or you can look for it online. Um, if they're telling you it's a behavioral profile and then telling you that you need prescriptions for it, that is a red flag. You always want to see a parallel between the intervention as well as the diagnosis that you're, that you're being sort of prescribed with. Um, and it's the same, if it's a neuropsychological profile, you want to make sure that they're doing the appropriate tests to confirm that it's indeed a neuropsychological profile. So if, if, it's, if you're seeing that the diagnosis is neuropsychological, but they've only asked you a few questions to confirm it, that's also a red flag. You would want to probably seek a different professional and not even use that professional at all. So this isn't even about clarification. It's like, okay, um, you're not even giving me, you know, the appropriate tests to look into the composition and chemistry of my brain, but you've decided that I have a mental health issue that has a neuropsychological profile. You know, it's time to run away from that professional. Um, but if you do have a professional who's saying that you might have a mental health issue that has a neuropsychological profile, and is running those tests to confirm, then it's a better, you know, at least there's alignment there. Um, and, and you want that alignment and you probably still want a few extra expert opinions and from doctors who are in the same community. So doctors who are part of different governing bodies or, you know, don't have personal ties. My opinion is if you have a diagnosis, a mental health issue that has a neuropsychological profile, and yet the diagnostic criteria is behavioral, so they're not actually looking to make sure that they're right, and they're looking at the composition and the chemistry of your brain, that's reckless psychology. If you have been given a diagnosis of a mental health issue that has a behavioral profile, but then they're prescribing a medication that alters the chemistry and the composition of your brain, that's reckless psychology as well. You always want to see alignment and you never want to expose yourself to drugs unnecessarily. And I think for most mental health issues, they mostly fall within the behavioral and cognitive profile. Those don't involve drugs at all. But what we're finding more in industry is that regardless of the profile, whether it's neuropsychological, cognitive or behavioral, it's always involving some form of drug intervention. And that is problematic. And that's what you know we're hoping to address. I think I'm hoping to provide the education required so that you know where to look, what to look for, so that if you're being prescribed a medication, you know if whether or not that's just overkill. You know, that's overdoing it. And overly means that your doctor, that specialist, is, does not have your best interest in mind. 
there are different motivators that are influencing the intervention that they're suggesting for you, which is not okay, but regardless of whether it's okay or not, you are now empowered with the information that you need to ensure that you don't fall victim to, you know, that shift in, um, that shift in, that disconnect in interest. I think I want to create this critical thinking lens where you own the decisions and you don't offload and assume that the professional in front of you cares as much as you do about you getting better. Never assume that anyone cares more than you do about you getting better. You care the absolute most and then it's up to you to align yourself with people who care almost as much. But don't, but don't assume that a professional has good intentions just because they have that title professional. Give them an opportunity to prove to you that they're professional. I mean, not everyone goes into service industries with the right intentions. And I think that's not me being pessimistic. That's a realistic point of view. And there are different mediums and methods that you can use to protect yourself and ensure that if you're commissioning someone to help you feel better and to be better, you're commissioning someone who has the ability to demonstrate their professionalism. Don't assume professionalism just because someone has the education and has the credentials. Give every professional an opportunity to prove themselves to you. Mental health, it's, it's an interesting thing to talk about because we, you know, the general community doesn't understand the amount of players involved in mental health. You know, we talk about the American Psychology Association and the board members on that association, the people who review the diagnostic statistic manual and the people who decide what stays and what goes. Not everyone is there because of competence and credibility. Some are there because of privilege and prominence because of the people that they're connected to and recognize that Pharmaceutical companies have a huge interest in different mental illnesses staying categorized as mental illnesses and different, um, you know, interventions involving drug interventions. And they have very close, um, there isn't enough done to create separation between the board members and those pharmaceutical companies. Pharmaceutical companies are players in your mental health ecosystem and they're not the players that have your best interests in mind. These people have made money off of, you know, for years and years, it's a billion dollar industry off of you being ill and they've made money off of keeping you ill. And this is a realistic point of view. And now there's a shift and there's this focus on mental wellness, but if they spent years historically not only keeping you ill but being able to sort of validify and substantiate their research off of harming and exploiting marginalized communities then that history needs to be present in our decision making as well like let's think the mental health system or sort of the mental health ecosystem consists of therapists psychologists psychiatrists general practitioners um, you know, nurses to some extent, pharmacists to some extent, uh, the pharma peddlers, the pharma salespeople, you know, researchers, scientists, academics. There are a lot of hands in the pot of mental health, and there's a lot of social and political interest involved in outcomes of mental health. We've talked about this before. And I think one thing that we've forgotten, some of us, is that the mental, the history of mental health is not, you know, perfect. 
a lot of why there are ethical boards is because there's been gross breaches of ethics. And, you know, there have been many crimes against humanity that have been committed in order to progress the needle on our understanding of, of, of mental health and sort of the growth and development of psychology. And that needs to play into our decision making. We cannot allow ourselves to be ignorant of what has been allowed to take place in the field of mental health in the way that we determine if whether or not mental health as it stands now is best sort of equipped and organized to support us into mental wellness. Another point that I mentioned in my original video is that there are specific behaviors that are othered just because of cultural norms. And one behavior that really always, it just it, it is a personal pet peeve is when I see that, you know, PMS, so PMDD is the specific acronym for premenstrual dysphoric disorder. And the fact that it's still in the DSM as a depressive profile, so this is a behavior profile that's depressive, is completely sexist because there is absolutely nothing about something that is very natural to, to each woman that where it should be in the DSM. You know, there's, it's not a mental health issue. The symptoms that come with what happens every month for the majority of a woman's, you know, pre-adolescent, adolescent, adult life is not behavior that should be othered. And the fact that it's still othered despite the progress that we have in our society is hugely problematic and it is a reflection of the diversity that sits on those board meetings. The fact that no one's read the, raised the red flag is like, you know what, these are symptoms. It's not appropriate that we other behavior um, that are, you know, aligned to females, you know? So that's why I'm saying just because it's in the DSM doesn't mean it should be in the DSM. It doesn't mean that it belongs there. There's a lot of diagnoses and mental health issues that are in the DSM. There's still lots of controversy within the communities as to whether or not it should be distinguished as a mental health issue. And PMS, PMDD is a perfect example of that. And there are lots of behaviors that should be in the Diagnostic Statistic Manual and there are not. One I've made up, fragile ego syndrome. And we've all been a victim to fragile ego syndrome. Case in point, you tell someone no, they decide that, you know, it's absolutely not your right to tell them no. They become punitive, they become spiteful, and they do all these things to you because you have the audacity to say no to them. And this is involved in mostly romantic settings. And I'm not gonna genderify this because men experience it as much as women do. And like my personal experiences are based on me being a female, but, you know, if I'm at a party and you ask me to dance with you and I say no, the result of my no shouldn't be you throwing your drink on my back, which has happened to me. Or, you know, I get you thrown out of the party, you come back and you harass me and you're saying, hey, I'm back in the party. Um, or even more, like once the party's closed and we're all like heading home, you pelt me with snowballs. You wait outside of the party to pelt me with snowballs because I had the audacity to say no, I didn't want to have a dance with you. That behavior is more than just, you know, toxic masculinity or femininity. That behavior is antisocial enough that it belongs in the DSM and yet it is not. Because only now we're starting to have conversations about how this isn't okay. How, you know, a lot of women especially 
get harassed and catcalled and have to deal with disparaging remarks just because they've said no or they've declined someone. And for me, if you've suffered the effects of someone's ego as a result of you displaying your right to not want to engage, that is a suffering the effects of fragile ego syndrome. And I know men have experienced too, and that's one example that has happened to me. And for me, this, this isn't behavior of someone who is stable. And yet, for whatever reason, this behavior has not been researched and categorized and disordered, and there has not been an intervention model built to deal with it. We're all dealing with it on a day-to-day -day basis. We're all figuring out our own ways and our tools to kind of gauge this behavior. Um, the DSM is so far behind, and my personal view is that there are too many people, you know, on those boards who empathize with that behavior, who find reasons to justify it, because why hasn't it been included as yet? And yet still PMDD, so PMS is still in the Diagnostic Statistic Manual, when it's absolutely natural, it is not depressive. Being emotional is not the same as being depressive, and I think the fact that, they, that those things are still intertwined, it's sexism, you know, that is sexism intertwining emotionality with you know depressive <laughs> attributes is just a way of marginalizing and oppressing women because emotionality is tied to being a female when emotionality as i mentioned in my first video is part of the human experience it's not something that is dedicated to women specifically um, and that's one example of, of why the dsm is is a very it's, it's a tool that we should use 100%. It's better than nothing, but it is absolutely not perfect. And you still need to use a critical thinking lens when you're being prescribed medication, when you're engaging with a professional. You last point, I believe it's very important that we recognize that there's a lot of misdiagnoses that takes place within the field of mental health. I mean, professionals are not infallible. We can't assume that they always have the right answers. And the DSM, as I mentioned, is very open to interpretation. There's, you know, it's not as concise, as cohesive, as clear as it could be, as it should be. And that's why we need to do our due diligence to ensure that we're being offered the best set of, you know, interventions, of models. And the only way to do that is to equip ourselves with the toolkit to navigate that terrain safely and i think that if we have more conversations like this if we develop awareness then we have a better sense of what is sort of accessible to us and what is the best fit just based on our current circumstances so hopefully this is a first step um, i'm hoping that this was informative and again if you want to keep that conversation going please do subscribe like comment and share this video until next time